Hey everyone, welcome back to the Westbridge Church Podcast. To learn more about Westbridge Church, including our service times, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com. This week's message comes from Pastor Tyson Harold, and we hope it encourages you to take your next step in your faith journey. We are celebrating with Sam and Jordan Conover this morning, well, really all weekend, as well as the Chittister family. After 1,309 days, they were able to adopt Cameron Jay from foster care that they'd been fostering, and so that was on Friday. And so if you see them, uh, just encourage them, tell them how excited you are for them. Uh, Cameron goes by Jay, uh, is her name, and we are so excited. So we want to celebrate with them. If you would, help me just... uh, Such an exciting thing to do, and uh, I want you to be watching in May. We're going to be talking about some things we're going to do as a church to help with additional foster and adoption needs, and you may not be called to 1,309 days of foster care, but there'll be ways that you can help, and so I'll be looking for that in May and excited to share some of those details as we continue to work through them. Well, if you are just joining us this Sunday or if you haven't been with us the past few, we've been going through a series on the book of Matthew. And in particular today, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. So if you want to flip over there, we're skipping ahead a little bit. We were in Matthew chapter 23 last week. This week, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. The reason why is we're getting closer to the events that lead up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And so we're trying to coincide that with what is coming up with Easter. And so we're going to jump ahead a little bit. We'll come back to some of those others later on. But as you're turning there, one of the most recognizable buildings in the world is the Leaning Tower of Pisa. This particular building was built with two other buildings in the 12th century, and it has one massive problem, and that is that it leans anywhere from three to five degrees. And over the years, there's been three major attempts to fix this tower, and in the late 90s to early 2000s, they finally got it fixed. Now, it's not getting any better But it's also not getting any worse. And what they did is they put these massive lead plates on the the high side, so to speak, to try and stop it from leaning any further. And in 2008, after doing this with a bunch of other stabilization work that I'll talk about more towards the end of the message, they were able to get the tower to stop moving. And the reason I bring that up is, is that for so many of us, we tend to lean towards one of two ways with our relationship with God. And the problem of the tower and what it's caused by, we'll, we'll talk about later, but for you and for I, we lean towards one of two ways. We lean towards extravagant sacrificial love with God and the people around us, or unfortunately, myself included, we often lean towards selfishness. And as we get up to the events of Easter, Matthew records two people who illustrate this almost perfectly. Mary, the the sister of Lazarus, and then that would represent extravagant sacrificial love, and then Judas, which would represent selfishness. And so in Matthew chapter 26, we see this play out, and I want to give you some help and support for your own life. If you find yourself leaning towards selfishness, because that's what we all do, we all lean towards selfishness as opposed to extravagant love. And I believe that if you work on this area of your life, specifically with your relationship with God, when you have people in your life that are working on their relationship with God to make sure that we're following him to the best of our ability, oftentimes our other relational matters seem to work themselves out as well. 
So that's why I think it's so important as we come up to Easter and we get close to the moment when Jesus uh, pays the ultimate price for our sin and and it comes back from the dead. Matthew gives these two examples and we find this listed in Matthew chapter 26, verse one. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the son of man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people assembled in the palace at the high priest whose name is Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they said they were indignant. They said, why this waste? This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to him, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver, and from then on, Judas watched an opportunity to hand him over. Jesus begins, or Matthew begins his account of this particular event. He says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, as it's coming up to the time when Jesus is to be crucified, he becomes laser focused in what he wants to share with the disciples. In particular, in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, what scholars call the Olivet Discourse, Jesus comes along with his disciples, and it's, a, it's a, only these guys. And as he shares these things, he shares a couple of parables as well as some apocalyptic references that, frankly, they didn't understand. And we don't either at times. And as he's sharing these things, he says, it says, as he finished saying these things, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. This had to be such a whiplash moment for the disciples because if you read the parables in Matthew chapter 25, it seems that Jesus is alluding to the fact that he's going to be king and he's going to set up his kingdom. And then his next response when he finished saying those things, it was, oh, and by the way, Passover is coming up and the Son of Man is going to be crucified. And I have to wonder, as the disciples heard that that day, it had to be so confusing for them because they thought Jesus was going to come and finally rid Rome of their power. They thought that he was going to set up his kingdom on earth. And if you read through Matthew chapter 24 and 25, it seems to allude that, man, this this is coming quickly. But then he breaks the news to them for now the third time in his ministry alongside them that he is going to be crucified. He says, as you know, the Passover is two days away. Keep in mind, the Passover was the commemoration, that eight-day festival that Jews celebrate, the release of bondage from, from ultimately from Egypt. And it started where if you put blood over your doorpost, the destroyer would not come and attack your, your, your family and kill your firstborn. But really, that was the, the start of the exodus out of Egypt. And they celebrate this, and Jesus says, look, it's two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So this particular event at Simon's house is about a week and a half before the crucifixion, roughly. It's about a Wednesday or Thursday before Jesus goes to die. He goes on to say, it's interesting too about Passover, is that Passover in Jerusalem was a massive deal. We see this later where they say, we don't want to uh, try and grab Jesus now because it's a festival and the people will riot. 
Passover in particular is if you were able as a Jew, you were to go to Jerusalem. So even if you had to walk forever, you went to Jerusalem. And scholars believe that Jerusalem doubled or maybe even tripled in size during the time of Passover. So this is a massive amount of people in a very small area. And Matthew records that Jesus says, look, Passover's coming, I'm going to be crucified. Verse 3, the chief priest and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Caiaphas was the high priest at this time, and it's interesting about Caiaphas is that he was one of the longest-serving high priests of that era. He served for 18 years. The guy who followed Caiaphas was only around for about six months. And Caiaphas, his role was not only as a high priest, if you remember from the Old Testament, was to go in and make atonement for the people's sins, but also Caiaphas switched the role. And he worked really, really well with Rome, almost too good with Rome. And so Caiaphas had this unique power because he was able to manipulate the Romans to do what he wanted to do. He was able to manipulate the Jews to do what he wanted to do. And this guy had an immense amount of power. You can go see today, Caiaphas's tomb is in Jerusalem. If you want to go see it, he, you can see where he lived or the area he was at. And he calls together this meeting of the chief priests and elders of the law, which was also known as the Sanhedrin. This would have been like, the only thing that we have equivalent would be like our Supreme Court. And this group of people would meet quite regularly to talk about whatever they wanted to talk about. And in this particular instance, we find out that Caiaphas says, look, we've got to find a way to get Jesus. So the disciples are against this backdrop of Jesus is going to be victorious. Oh, no, he's not. He's going to die. And then Caiaphas is coming alongside. And this is against the, the context of what he's headed to. And he tells them, we can't do it during the festival because there's going to be too many people. Many people from Galilee would have been in attendance of the Passover festival, and they obviously loved Jesus because that's where he was from. And so we see Caiaphas trying to set the scene. If you keep in mind, just a reminder that God's in control, what happened? They actually did apprehend Jesus during the festival. And so even though that was their original plan, it wasn't God's plan. In verses 6 and 7, it goes on to say that while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at his table. While Jesus was in Bethany, Bethany was just east of Jerusalem. A couple days later, he would enter through the eastern gate on a donkey for what we know as Palm Sunday. And Jesus is at the home of Simon the leper. Now keep in mind, Simon couldn't be a leper anymore because as a Jew, you couldn't be around somebody who was struggling with leprosy. So most likely, Simon was a a well-to-do man who had been healed from leprosy by Jesus. And at that house, we see from John's account that Lazarus is there, also healed by Jesus, along with his sisters, Mary and Martha. The dinner conversation at this house had to be quite interesting. Like, what did he do for you? What did he do for you? Right? And we find from John's account that this this happened in Simon's house along with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So this particular Mary is not Mary's, or not Jesus' mother Mary, but Lazarus' sister. Mary leaned towards extravagant sacrificial love, and there's three correct characteristics that we see this morning of that kind of love. And as we see this, I hope it gives you a picture of the way in which we're called to live with God. First mark of extravagant love is that it's costly. Mary had an alabaster jar. Alabaster was a type of rock or mineral that could be molded or or shaped quite easily, but it was expensive. And not only was the jar expensive, but what was in the jar was expensive. 
Most scholars believe that the perfume that she had would have been about 300 denarii or about a year's worth of wages. And so extravagant love, the first mark of it is it's cost. It cost Mary a lot of money to, to give this and to use it for Jesus's ultimate burial. That's the first mark of extravagant love. It could be even that Mary might have been saving that as a dowry in their culture. We don't know. But the whole purpose we find from verse 12 is that Mary was doing this to prepare Jesus's body for burial. So the first mark of extravagant love is that it's costly. The best example we have of this is what, a week, a week or so later when Jesus would come and to give his life for you and for me. To die on the cross, to be buried, but to be risen again three days later. Extravagant love is costly. It's going to cost you to love the people in your life something. It could be your own wants. It could be your own desires. Mary, for her, it cost about a year's worth of wages for her to show her love to Jesus. She didn't just say she loved Jesus. No, she was ready to show that she loved Jesus. The second mark of extravagant love is that it's responsive. It's responsive. Unfortunately, right, we wait till funerals to tell people really how we feel about them. But not for Mary. Her love was responsive. She saw Jesus and reacted to it. She had to do something. We see from Luke's account of the Gospels that actually Mary often sat close to Jesus as she would listen to him teach. And for whatever reason, she decided that what Jesus was doing was worthy of something that was really costly, and she was willing to show her love to him. I'm reminded of in the movie The Elf when Buddy falls in love with Jovi. If you remember, he burst into his dad's office and he says, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't, I don't care who knows it, right? When we love someone, not only to show their love, it's going to be costly. It's going to cost us to love someone well. It's also going to be something where we, it's just going to be the response of our heart. Our, that we just, it's going to well up inside us that we've got to do something. And so Mary does this because she sees Jesus and, and she shows her love in a responsive way. Extravagant love sees the chance to show love and does something about it. Extravagant love is responsive. It goes on in verse 8 to say, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant and said, why this waste? They asked, this perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Indignant is that idea of being disgusted or angry. And they see Mary show this extravagant love in a costly and responsive way. And their response is not, oh, that's a great idea, Mary. No, it's actually ridicule and resentment. Now, the reality is, is that let's say Mary took her jar of alabaster and, and did exactly what they say, gave it to the poor. It would have helped but it really wouldn't have helped that much. When it talks about them feeding the 4,000, it says it would have been about 250 denarii. So it would have fed about 4,000 people for one meal. Not for a day, not for a week, but for one meal. And so it's true that it would have possibly helped the poor, but I think there's a warning for you and for me here today is that sometimes we don't see the full picture of what's going on. Mary recognizes that Jesus is about to die because he said so. The disciples who had been with him for three years, who should have known better, they miss it once again. She's ready to show her love because she recognizes that Jesus is about to die and the disciples missed it. 
And my guess is if they were that close to Jesus and missed it, then you and I will probably miss it too sometimes. And you and I will probably lean away from extravagant love and more towards selfishness. So what happens? In verse 10, Jesus is aware of this and says to him, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. It's interesting that Jesus saw the heart of Mary. He saw her love and what she was willing to show. He said it was a beautiful thing. And he says, the poor you'll always have with you. And some have argued that Jesus is trying to push back against them and say, look, you've always had a chance to help the poor. You'll continue to have a chance to help the poor. Why do you care so much now? Love is responsive, and they didn't see the chance they had with Jesus. He tells them, I'm not going to be with you very much longer. He once again shares with them. And he says that Mary did this to prepare his body for burial. After Jesus had told him of his crucifixion for the third time, Mary's response was extravagant love, and the disciples was not. The last characteristic that we see in Mary's extravagant love is that it's memorable. It's memorable. Verse 13, truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What she has done will be told in memory of her. The story of unselfish adoration. She doesn't care if it's embarrassing. She doesn't care. She's just willing to show her love for God. It'll be told in memory of her. Three out of the four gospels have this account. And unfortunately, the story that we're about to talk about with Judas is probably even more well-known. But Jesus says, look, when the gospel is shared, this story will be told by what she has done. It's not just what you say, it's what you do. When we talk about love, it's really, really easy to share that you love something or someone. But to show that love takes an entirely different effort. So the last mark of Mary's extravagant love is that it's memorable. When I was a little kid... I would sit, my mom was a church pianist, I would sit underneath the piano and listen to her play and sing. It was probably one of my favorite memories growing up as a kid. I'd just sit there and listen to her play and sing for hours as she was getting ready. Well, after one of those times, I told my mom that one day I want to marry a woman who can sing. Well, my, Shelley found out about this, and about six months before our wedding, she took voice lessons to learn how to sing. And the day that we got married, she sang as she came down the aisle, recorded Uh, to me. I don't remember a whole lot about this because I cried through most of it. But what I do remember is that it was memorable. And she had told me a a lot of times before and a lot of times since then that she loved me. But I tell you what, that day I knew it. And I think what Mary is calling us to, what, what Matthew's trying to record for us here is that it's not enough to say it. You've got to do something. And that for Mary in particular, this was memorable. If Mary was the standard of extravagant love, then we see the exact opposite in Judas. And unfortunately, we see it in ourselves at times. Take a look at verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. It could have been that Judas was angry at what he just witnessed, and that's what drove him to go find the chief priest and to tell him. But the question that he asked, what are you willing to give me in return for turning him over? Selfishness always asks the question, what's in it for me? 
And whether this is with your relationship with God or it's in relationship with your peers or your friends or your workers or your family, it always asks the question, what's in it for me? And the problem is we lean away from extravagant love and we lean towards selfishness anytime we ask the question, what's in it for me? Now, the shocking thing of Judas's betrayal is that he was willing to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver or roughly 30 denarii, roughly 10 times less than what Mary was willing to show Jesus. If Mary showed Jesus her love with 300 denarii, a year's worth of wages, Judas was only willing to do it for 30 pieces of silver, which the equivalent was the price of a slave in their culture. And look at the contrast between what Mary was willing to give and what Judas was willing to get. It's striking. Verse 16 goes on to say that he watched for an opportunity to turn him over, and we know about a week later from this particular event, they're in the, in the Kidron Valley, Garden Gethsemane area. He waits for it when it's just the disciples, the smallest group of people around him, and that's when he turns him over. So what drove Judas to do this? And for you and for I today, what do we do with all of this? Because you see this extravagant love that Mary's willing to show, and then you see the pure selfishness of Judas. And, and, and what do we do? How did Judas get here? I don't, I don't think it happened overnight because he didn't start this way. Keep in mind that Jesus called Judas. There was something that Judas offered to the disciples during this time, and, and I'm sure Jesus was hoping that Judas would, would deal with some of these issues. Keep in mind, Judas would have heard the parable of the weeds where Jesus told him that sometimes there would be weeds that would sprout up among the wheat, and you can't just rip the weeds out or you'll destroy all the good as well. He says, you wait till harvest, and then you throw the weeds and burn them, and you keep the wheat for you. He would have heard the parable of the sower that said that some seed goes out and is picked up by the birds. And some seed goes out and it falls into soil and it sprouts up, but then the sun scorches it. And some seed falls in between the cracks and it, and it gets terrible root system. And some seed produces a crop 30, 60, 100 fold. So Judas heard all of the things that you've heard. He was front row seat to hearing what God was trying to tell him through these parables. And so what did he do wrong? I think there's three characteristics of selfishness that we see in the life of, of Judas, not necessarily immediately in this, this text, but in the context of jo Judas's life, we see this. These are three possible things that happened in his life, and unfortunately, they happen in our lives as well. So these are just postulations, but I think they're good because they reveal in us a selfishness that shows up in our own lives as well. It could have been, number one, could have been that uh, Judas leaned this way because of greed, Right? Maybe he really just wanted more money. John accounts that Judas was always taking money out of the bag. He was the treasurer, and he was just always taking money out. So maybe it was pure greed that he couldn't even see that it was such a small amount, because that's what greed and sin does, is it blinds us to see how bad things really are. For you and for me, maybe we miss out on what's right in front of us because of our greed, because it's all about us. And we're not so much concerned about money, but we're concerned about our image, we're concerned about our pride. I don't know what it was for Judas, but maybe it was greed. Number two, maybe he was concerned with building the wrong kingdom. Building the wrong kingdom. Judas and many others thought that Jesus was going to be this political savior. And when maybe when it didn't quite pan out the way he thought, maybe Judas recognized, you know what, this isn't going to work like I thought. He, now he says he's going to be crucified. I'm out. For you and for I, 
when we work towards getting towards the top or making sure that we're seen a certain way, we're, we're building the wrong kingdom. And what happens is, is that that leans a certain way, and at the end of the day, it will eventually fall because your kingdom will not stand. I had the privilege this week to do uh, Shelly's grandma's funeral. She was 93 years old, and about 10 years ago, we went to church with her, and on the way to church, we were talking about church, and I, I must have a sign on my face that says, tell me your church's problems, because that's often what happens. And she's telling me some of them, and I was guessing. And we pull into the parking lot, and she says, you know what my church's biggest problem is? And I was like, no, ma'am, I don't know what your church's biggest problem is. She goes, my church's biggest problem is me. And I said, wait a minute, what do you mean your church's biggest problem is you? Man, well, you're like the least pretentious lady I know. What, what do you mean? Once again, building the wrong kingdom. It's all about me and what I can get and what's best for me. And sometimes we do that, and ultimately that's what Judas did, right? He was concerned about building his kingdom in the way that he wanted it, and it, it flies in the face of extravagant sacrificial love. And then lastly, maybe he was trying to play God. Maybe he didn't think Jesus would die. I mean, we don't really know. We know that Judas was willing to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. We know that he was apparently remorseful in doing so. But maybe he didn't think Jesus was going to die. Maybe he just thought, I'll force his hand. If he gets arrested by the Romans, finally Jesus will show up and do what he said he's going to do all along. Maybe Judas was just trying to force the hand of Jesus so that he would do what he wanted him to do. Unfortunately, you and I do this sometimes, whether it's with family or friends or parenting or our spouse, where we try and play God and manipulate situations to be exactly what we want it to be. And if the three markers of love are that it's costly, that it's responsive, and that it's memorable, then the three markers of selfishness are greed, trying to build our own kingdom, and trying to play God. And so the question today for you and for me is, what do we do with this? I want you to think back to the Leaning Tower of Pisa. The real problem with the Leaning Tower of Pisa is it's a bad foundation. And every effort to stabilize the foundation up until 2008 have been met with problems. And I would argue today that if you struggle to love God in an extravagant, sacrificial way, and you lean towards selfishness, you have a foundation problem. And you can try and prop that up and fill the cracks and do all that you can, but if your foundation is on anything other than Jesus Christ and him alone, the tower is going to fall. It's not if, it's when. It's the same with Judas, and it's the same with us. When we try and manipulate situations or manipulate Jesus to be what we want him to be, it's the wrong foundation. But the incredible news this morning is, is that if you fix that foundation, and by fixing it, I don't mean trying harder. I don't mean reading your Bible more necessarily. I don't mean necessarily doing a lot of things. What I do mean by fixing the foundation is allowing Christ to be the foundation and allowing him to be what you build everything else upon. If you'll do that, that's the first step in allowing him to fix every area of your life. For some of you, the way that you can lay that right foundation is to actually trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. I know many of you have done that in this room, but for some, if you've not, that's what you need to do. Because that is the ultimate example 
of being willing to lay aside your own wants and desires, a problem that you can't fix, which is your sin, and allowing Jesus Christ to fix that problem for you. And if you've never done that before, I would encourage you, I'd love to talk with you today. You can do that right where you're at right now. You can admit that you're a sinner and that by Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, he paid the price for your sin. And that by trusting in him and and asking for forgiveness, you can have a right relationship with him and set that foundation in the right way. And if you've never done that, like I said, I'd love to talk to you. You can actually, I'll give you a couple options here. You can text the word salvation to 765-246-8552 and I will follow up with you this week about what it means to set that foundation right. Maybe you've done that, and maybe, you know, you're like, okay, how do I show selfish or selfless sacrificial love? One of the best things you can do if you've made that step is to be baptized, and you can text the word baptism to that same number. What a great way to go public and declare your love for God, to show literally the the death of your own self, to be raised to new life, and if you've never done that before, we'd love to help you with that. But my guess is, for most of us, we've done those things. And for most of us, there's a crack or there's a chip away in the foundation because we've leaned towards selfishness and we've tried to do it our own way. And today, as we close out our time this morning, I just want to spend some time in prayer, and I want you to ask God this question. Is there an area of my life in which the foundation is broken? And I believe through the power of the Holy Spirit in this moment that he can speak to every single one of us to reveal something that may need to change. And my hope and my prayer is that God would give you the courage to not only admit that, but then to ask for help. And so if you want help praying for that, text pray to that same number. We'd love to pray with you this week. And so I want to just give you a few moments as we wrap up our time this morning to ask God for his help in building his kingdom instead of your own. And my hope and my prayer is, is if you fix that foundation, it's going to be a lot easier to live in a selfless, extravagant, sacrificial love. But if you don't fix that foundation, the warning is there from Judas today. If you don't deal with that, that tower will come crashing down. Let me give you just a few minutes to pray. we thank you for the opportunity this morning that we can not just hear about your word, but God, we can be doers of the word. That God, that you would help us to be a kind of people who have the right foundation of Christ and what he's done for us. And God, that we would allow that to shape the rest of the way in which we live. We thank you for Mary and her example of extravagant, sacrificial love. And we thank you for the warning of Judas. And what the end game of selfishness will result in is not good for us. So God, I pray that even right now that you would just continue to help us see our sin in light of who you are. But God, that we wouldn't leave here defeated and hopeless. That God, that we would recognize that Jesus Christ can fix even the most broken, messed up foundations there are. So God, I pray that you would lay this morning a cornerstone built on Christ in our hearts. 
that God, that you would build upon that something that you've promised will stand forever. Not because of our great desires or our great efforts, but because of the strong name and power of Jesus Christ. So God, we recognize our dependence upon you this morning and ask that in a, in a new way that we would showcase our love and devotion to you, not just by the words that we say or the songs that we sing, but the lives that we lead. And God, I pray for many of us, myself included, who struggle with selfishness, that God, that we would put that aside and look only to you. In Jesus' name. If you were encouraged by today's talk and believe it would be helpful for others, please be sure to subscribe or share. To experience other messages or find helpful resources, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com.